Can you imagine what it feels like to be a Canadian soccer player as Peter Pendergast blows the whistle? It's official. Canada 2000 Gold Cup champions. How does that sound? You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode 24 of the Northern Football Podcast. Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff are back with you after a slightly longer break than usual, which means we now have plenty to catch up on, Thomas. We sure do, Peter. Canada winning at the Olympics. We're also back to our regular uh, schedule recording, uh, recording on Mondays and Tuesdays. The Canucks Abroad Mailbag returns with many many Canadians in Europe and, and potential transfers as well. As well, uh, very interesting Finally, Canada has a venue. Not that it was ever in doubt, but BMO Field it is. Yes, it is, for the next couple of windows at least. Uh, A reminder to please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. If that platform is Apple, then please leave us a rating and review if you have the time, as that helps the pod immensely. Also, we are partnered with Northern Tribune. You can check them out on Twitter at Northern Tribune, and you can also check out the podcast write-ups for more info on the shows and whatnot on the website as well. So yes, as Thomas mentioned, the Canadian women's national team, as many of you witnessed, won gold in women's soccer after defeating Sweden in the penalty shootout following a 1-1 draw after extra time, it's Canada's first medal, men or women's, since 1904, when the men technically claimed gold, but at that time, it was clubs representing certain cities and countries, and the Canadian team from Cambridge won that year. So really, as a national team, no Canadian side has ever won an Olympic gold medal. So, Thomas, can we really put this accomplishment into words, just given that I think before the tournament started... We probably weren't that bullish on their chances to probably even medal, and then they come away with the gold. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, 4.4 million people watched it, um, coast to coast in Canada. Um, that's, you know, more than 11% of the country. Um, you know, in US numbers, that would be 44 million uh, out of 300. So, uh, incredible. You would think that when Canada qualified to the knockout stage, anything other than a bronze medal, would have been a disappointment, which on paper would have been. I thought Canada did great, um, but I do want to say something like this: this win, I hope it does something for women's soccer. I mean, I know that um, Dr. Nick Bontes has been saying, President of the CSA has been saying, he's been working behind the scenes on a NWSL team and and, and Josie Otter Ortiz something, which we don't know if, if there's anything to that. But I'm sure this this has a legacy, especially because it is probably Christine Sinclair's last tournament, uh, last major tournament uh, with this Canadian team. Yes, which we'll get into all of that in a bit. But maybe for the game itself, this was a, a surprise to me because I did not see this coming at all, especially considering Sweden and the Dutch, at least for me, were considered the favorites for the gold. But it's clear that getting past the United States probably buoyed Canada to think we can do this. And credit to them. I mean, they were under pressure at the end of extra time. I think they only scored one goal from open play the entire knockout stage. So probably less than ideal in that regard. But they don't ask how. They ask if you did it. And they ended up winning gold. But are using a wider scope. Who was your... Not just your woman of the match, but also the player of the tournament from a Canadian perspective. 
I think you have to give it to uh, Jesse Fleming. And look, I mean, you take the penalty kick that ties it up with Sweden, takes it to penalties. And you also have the game-winning goal against the U.S., which, again, also on penalties. I think that has to be it. I um, mean, obviously, the quarterfinal win against Brazil, uh, also on penalties, was very, very important. But uh, but those two goals from, from Jesse Fleming, just how cool she was as a cucumber uh, to step up and put it in the back of the net. Uh, for me, that'll be the the moment that perhaps maybe most people remember uh, Julia Grosso scoring the the winner. Um, but I think Jesse Fleming, not only for what she did in those two pens, but again, she's been um, not played a lot at our club uh, with the Chelsea women's team. So to come in like that without, you know, not a big season under her belt uh, club-wise um, and to deliver the way she did, with Canada, especially considering how young she is. Like, she, you know, she's one of the players that started very young, I think 16, 17. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it feels like she's been around forever. So that would be my player of the time. I, I mean, I do agree with you. She was terrific all tournament. And she's been really good under Bev Priestman since she took over. She's been a real key piece of that team. And as she should be, she's a sublime player. And I think she will be one of the key pieces going forward as part of that spine heading into the World Cup and beyond as well because remember she is only 22 23 years old which is hard to believe but i feel just given that when you look at how the knockout stage transpired i feel like stephanie labe has to be the player of the tournament because they wouldn't have won a medal without her they wouldn't have even gotten past the quarterfinals if it wasn't for her and the fact that she was smiling throughout the shootout during the gold medal match is just the most hilarious thing to me because Thomas, you and I were both goalkeepers. We've probably both competed in shootouts before. I have to tell you, I am captain serious when a shootout is happening. Like, I can't do anything else other than frown and just stare down the opposing player. She's out here just grinning ear to ear in probably the most pressure situation of her career. Oh, it's incredible. It's uh, just the way that um, she carries herself on and off the field. And and you have to, and I agree with you 100%. I think she was instrumental um, they wouldn't have won without her. Like she made unbelievable saves, and and it's 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 interesting because the the goalkeeper position has been passed down, right? First it was uh, LeBlanc, then Aaron McLeod, and she had the big Olympics um, uh, playing uh, at the 2015 World Cup in her hometown, which is Edmonton, right. which is also my hometown. Uh, and then it's passed down to uh, to Labe, so it's. It's incredible just how, you know, the process has been not only for, for Labe, but every other goalkeeper that has come before her. And and, and look, they even said it um, in, in the presser or the mix zone um, that, you know, it's it's not just their and them who, who achieved this. It's everyone else who came before them. And, and look, this is a much younger team, which is unbelievable too. Um, just how maybe not lack of experience, but the new talents that are coming in, just how young they are and, and, and how good they are compared to the ones that are so established and have played in multiple World Cups and, and multiple Olympics is um, is just very fitting. And and, and and to put one point there, um, Priestman was, was facing a lot of criticism, I thought, maybe after the, the group stage. Of course, um, you know, they tied Japan and, and they beat Chile 2-1, to, to but, you know, it could have been close. Um, obviously, Drew against Great Britain, um, but but look, I mean, the, the, from the knockout stage, they really turned it on. 
They did. Defensively, they were very solid. Um, they, they weren't kind of holding on for dear life, apart from moments in the extra times, but that's to be expected when you've played two hours, <laughs> and, and especially when you're having a short turnaround as well. And, and that's really when most of, at least in the gold medal match, when Sweden's chances really arrived was in those last five minutes of extra time. So yeah, you do have to credit them. Um, but brief shout-outs as well for the likes of Ashley Lawrence, Vanessa Gilles, um, they were terrific as well and probably going to be part of that spying going forward, which begs the question, now that they have won gold and with the World Cup two years away, what do you see as the outlook for the program right now? It's tough to tell, but what I would do if if, if I thought was right, um, there's certain players on this team that I think, um, you know, just what, what we know about sports science, Peter and and, and all that, there's some players that that can can make it uh, to another World Cup in 2023. Um, you know, Lave being one example, Chapman, for example, being 32. Maybe Desiree Scott, although midfield is kind of tough because you know they run a lot. Um, can Christian Sinclair make it there? I mean, as long as she's playing for her club, I don't see why not. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's tougher in the case of you know Sophie Schmidt and whatnot. Uh, but there are certain players who will have to take decisions, have to take decisions with what they want to do, and I'm sure that decision will be made collectively. Uh, them and uh, and Priestman will have to make. Um, it's obviously first, it's how how their body feels and and how they and how and how well the club situation as well if they're playing. So I think that needs to be not clarified. But sometimes you don't pick who retires. I mean that just happens no. naturally. You know, it's some players they, they never get that that farewell as they ever want. The, some players will. You know, want to keep playing as long as they ever get a call, and then a year or two will pass, and then they'll they'll never know that that was their last game playing for Canada. That's that's number one for me. Like, decide the players that are going to keep going forward. Uh, number two, depending on that, give more protagonism to the young players. I think the young players are already having a young, even more protagonism now. First and foremost, and and look, professionalize the 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 players that you know the players that are right now playing in the NCAA. Um, I think they're probably, I mean, if I were in their position, um, I'd probably go pro right now. Um, that's what I would do. And, and, and last off, I mean, I, I think this has to be said, like, I think, you know, after this win, it, it puts a lot of pressure and, and awareness that, you know, a professional league is, it should be on the rise now. Yeah. So let's dive into this because we did get a question from Dan Clark about this. And he asked, does this win show the need to have either an NWSL team in Canada and or a fully professional Canadian women's league in order to continue to foster and develop Canadian talent? Because as you said, Thomas, the NCAA route is basically the only pathway if you're a young Canadian female player, uh, in terms of getting maybe eventually professional opportunities, whether that's in the NWSL or overseas. We obviously saw Deanne Rose finish her college career, and now she's going to Reading to continue, or to start her pro career in this case. Um, But if it were up to you, which would you rather see? Would you rather see NWSL expansion or would you rather see a fully-fledged Canadian league? Obviously, both can can be possible, but if you had to pick just one. If I had to pick just one on what would come first, um, I think the most logical answer would be NWSL team. And the reason I'll say this is because creating a women's league is something so tough. I mean, we saw it with the men, how difficult it is. And, and, and look, even the CPL right now, they're still... We're still in diapers. 
they're still in diverse. So yeah. um, there's still so much that you'd have to figure out from a log- logistical standpoint, financial standpoint, organizational standpoint. You have to crack the numbers and, and see what makes sense and what doesn't um, from investment and whatnot before you even get to the football stuff, which is obviously, like you say, the the, the selection of players. I think what would, be more, what would be more impactful would be 100% a women's league because you would have, you know, six, eight teams. You, I don't know, 150, 125 professional spots for a lot of, for the best of the best, the best Canadians playing in the NCAA, the best Canadians playing in new sports, some Canadians that maybe were turned down by European clubs. Like it would be more impactful. But what is probably going to happen, what would happen first would probably be an NWSL team. And I'm curious to see how that develops because a city like Toronto, 6 million people, um, that in terms of a market can compete with, I would say, I would even say even almost any American city besides maybe the size of New York, of course, but um, that would be it. And and I'd be curious to see if this NWSL team that perhaps would be created would be to include same uh, national team players or would it be, because obviously right now you have 15 NW Canadian players playing at NWSL clubs. So if you bring this, bring those NWSL players to Toronto, wouldn't it make sense to create more 15 players and expand the player pool? But I mean, that's, that's a conversation that's way ahead, but it is, it is. But I I do agree with you though. The, the NWSL route is the easiest because you're joining an already established league. You unfortunately don't have the control over philosophy and you are joining a league, an American league to be specific, where the benefits of American soccer are being looked at over Canadian and the, the American leagues, whether that's MLS, the NWSL, whatever, tend to be more focused on making money and being a, a, a strong business than they do actually developing the domestic game, right? So if you're joining that, that's the downside. Whereas if you start a Canadian league, you have more control over that. But as you said, logistically, it is difficult in a pandemic. The CSA's finances are not in a good state. I know some people have picked it apart recently, but it's really tough to judge when you don't have specifics. And when you don't really know the inner workings of what's happening, plus you also need invested owners. That's one reason why the CPL was lifted off the ground because they found investment in those teams. And now you're seeing expansion kind of slowly rolling out because now they're maybe asking for a little bit too much money. And now investors are kind of going, well, okay, I don't know if that's worth it for me. So it's really all contingent on that. It's a tough call. It's a tough call, especially because even the NWSL doesn't have the best salaries. Um, you could even consider that. You could even compare that to similar numbers um, with CPL. But obviously, with the difference being that NWSL is in US dollars and, and CPL is in Canadian dollars. Yeah. I would be surprised, Peter, if it was one owner. I think you need multiple people to create an ownership group. And personally, it's, it's something that... I just don't see why it wouldn't work. Like it's just, it's something so logical. And and look, TFC for example, they have um, a great facility on BMO Field, for example, that we'll talk about a little later. But how difficult would it be to you know buy a club and you know manage it? I think, and 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 you could even do stuff like create discounts for uh, Toronto FC season ticket holders, for example. Um, I think it's very logical in in terms of a. Uh, a uh, structural point of view, and and I think they would do I think they would do well in terms of attendance. It certainly would. We we see a lot of people who would say that they would support it. Let, let's hope that they put their money where their mouth is, if that ever comes to fruition, and 
actually do end up supporting it because if they do, then you get some momentum and then who knows what can happen. Um, let, let's close it out with this. Uh, David Anthony asked us, do you think Christine Sinclair walks off into the sunset with her gold or does she hang around for the next Women's World Cup? You sort of already said that it's really contingent on if she's playing, if she feels good, and obviously Bev, Bev Priestman will take her. And to that, I agree. I personally feel like because they won the gold and because they have these younger players coming through, maybe they think, hey, we could maybe make a push for the world. I don't think they're going to win it per se, but maybe they can get further than the round of 16 or maybe even the quarterfinals, you know, in, in, in two years' time. And, and she might want to, to stick around and kind of help the team one last time, having now won that gold. This would be the perfect moment for Christian Sinclair to walk off into the sunset. Um, as David Anthony says, um, but I have a feeling that she'll stick around. And the reason I say that is because she has so much respect from everyone yeah. in that locker room and not only everyone, but everyone in Canadian soccer that I feel like it'll be on her terms. You know, she's going to decide whenever she wants to retire and then she'll know ahead of time that will be her last game playing for the Canadian shirt. That's what I think. Two years is, is, is steep. I think it's, it's a long time. A lot can happen in, in a period of 24 months, especially when you're 38 and, and you're going to be 40. Um, but players can play until the 40. I know goalkeepers can for sure. Yep. Um, and obviously, Christian Sinclair right now is being pushed, not out of the lineup, starting lineup per se, but yeah, I mean, she is, but she's being pushed by these younger players that are just so hungry and, and, and very good for their age. So I think it's going to be on her terms. Would I be surprised if she made it to the next World Cup? I wouldn't, but I also wouldn't be surprised if she decided to call quits um, along the way. I, I, but I would be surprised if this was her last game. Yeah, so would I. So would I. She might get a farewell in front of fans, if anything, before she calls it. So let's move on to the return of the Canadians Abroad mailbag. Uh, with several European leagues resuming and transfer talk heating up, it is time, I think, to bring it back. Uh, in the future, if you ever want us to update you on a specific Canadian abroad, don't hesitate to reach out to us, whether that's at Northern Football, at Galindo PW, or at Thomas Neff. We'll be more than happy to log it and then bring it up on the next episode. So let's dive in. Uh, Dan Clark and Aru Yan uh, asking us a couple questions regarding Stefan Ostakio, but Dan specifically wants to know, uh, is the lack of progress surrounding the transfers of Kyle Laren and Stefan Ostakio concerning? What do you think about this? Laren's playing Champions League football. Ostakio's going to be playing, is already going to be playing conference. Good chance he'll probably get a showing against Spurs as well. I mean, that's still a big opportunity. Laren just won Turkish League and Ostakio finished fifth in the Portuguese League. Under those parameters alone, that's great. Can they do more? 100%. But sometimes some things are out of your control. I mean, you need the agents to agree. You need the clubs to want you. Um, you need things to certain. You need plans to align, essentially. Yeah. Um, I know Laren's on the last uh, year of his deal. I know Stocky has a couple more years left on his contract. So for Stocky, I'm probably he's probably locked up a little bit more. Uh, Laren will probably leave on a free transfer if he isn't uh, transferred uh, now because he has rejected several contract offers from Besiktas. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think Ostakio is probably more likely to leave just because of his contract situation. Is it concerning? Yes, in a way, but they're still playing very competitive football. I mean, the Portuguese and Turkish league are top 10 in the world. But at least there is progress on the Laren front. Besiktas have lowered their asking price from 10 to 8 million euros. 
They apparently spoke to Marseille over the weekend, who want to add a forward, and for that price, you really can't go wrong. He also has interest from Bordeaux, who desperately need a number nine, as well as Rennes. Uh, I would personally like Laren in France. I think it would force him to be more physical as well, because that is a very tough league for forwards. Uh, my only concern with going to any of those teams really is, with Marseille, right now, they play with a lone striker, and... That is where he really struggles when he has to go one-on-one -on -one with defenders in the box where he really can't kind of shadow in and, and, and sort of pounce unexpectedly. I guess the bright side is, and Thomas, you will know this, but uh, their new coach, Jorge Sampaoli, he has played with two up front before. And he has at times played with, with very unorthodox forwards where like they just kind of fluidly move all over the place. So maybe we end up seeing that if they get the attacking reinforcements that they still need. But but that would be my one issue with it. And then Bordeaux only play with one forward. That seems set in stone. Ren deploy a 4-3-3 under Bruno Genesio. So maybe Laren could be deployed as an inside forward there. But that would be my one concern there. And then I agree with you with the Ashtakio rumors. Once Porto withdrew, I felt like that was probably going to be it for him. Braga have sniffed around, but there's been nothing heard from them for the last month. Because apparently they were put off by Pacos' asking price. Uh, but look, it could be worse. Like, he could not be playing, and he will be playing regularly, at least, in a solid league. It's incredible how he has a great performance at the Gold Cup, and nothing happens. I mean, it looks like Kev has lost, you know, some of that power of exposure, even though it did get quite a bit of exposure. Uh, and on Laren, I don't know, I just, I, I would like to see him play for a club that's, you know, more, more up top, Rennes, Marseille. Um, but I think Bordeaux, I think, would be dropping in, in level. I don't know what you think. I, I would agree. I, I think so. And just tactically, it probably wouldn't work out. A question from Aryan here. Uh, is there any new transfer update on Junior Hoylet? Um, there is not. Middlesbrough is still sniffing around. Toronto FC is still linked. Uh, I know we've talked about this a couple of times, but a Toronto FC return might be the most enticing, I think, for people on this side of the pond, but maybe quality-wise and just the fit. Uh, maybe going back to his old boss, Neil Warnock, might be the most ideal for him. I'm going to say Middlesbrough is probably the better, the better fit just because he even stayed in touch with his older coach when he was playing for uh, a different club. And I think MLS, yes, he's, you know, aging. He's still 31. Um, so I would think that personally speaking, I think he could probably play in, in England at the championship level because the championship is better than the MLS. He'd probably play there for a season or two more um, before making over the switch to, to the MLS. But in terms of level, like if he wanted to right now, if he wanted to make a bigger impact than he would, for example, if you, I think if he went over to the championship, I think he'd be an average player, you know, you know, get 90 minutes here and there, sometimes 70, 80, you know, maybe in a 30 game season, get five, six goals, you know, no problem, a couple of assists. But I think if he wants to be in the last, I think his, his impact would be bigger. Um, not that he would be on a DP, but, you know, maybe he'd be brought in, a, in some time money. I, I think that that's, that would be his level, like around a million bucks, somewhere around there to come home and, you know, kind of, I, I don't want to say right off into the sunset, but certainly, you know, be a little bit more comfortable being closer to family and whatnot. Over to some other transfers that have either happened or are about to happen. Uh, one completed move was Theo Corbinu getting loaned to Sheffield Wednesday in League One from Wolverhampton Wanderers. What do you think about this move for young Theo? 
was interesting with Theo because he actually had a couple of offers from some championship clubs, maybe at the lower end of the table, and several uh, League One clubs that inquired about him. But, you know, from what I heard is Wolves essentially took the final decision, um, more so than the player itself. So on that note as well, I mean, look, Sheffield were relegated from the championship and they're, you know, looking to come back to the championship. So he's still going to be playing on a very good team. Although, you know, a lot of the players that were on last year's team now have gone and found new clubs at the championship level, most of them anyways. Sheffield have brought in five or six new players. So it is still a League One level team with, you know, lower mid-championship uh, level, but I think it's going to be difficult for Theo because, again, I think championship, you know, you can't afford to play a youngster. You have to win. You know, your job is on the line every three, four matches. But on League One, it's a little bit more flexible. But at the same time, he's still in a very good League One team. So is he going to find his way into the lineup? For sure. I think he's going to get a chance maybe um, after four or five games after solid substitutions, you know, making a good impression. But is he going to be a guy that, you know, will, you know, score 10, 15 goals right off the bat? Perhaps not. But I think in the first half of the season, it's just him getting his feet wet. But again, just because he's playing on a team that just got relegated and had bigger ambitions, they still have to win. They do, but that could help them, though. Playing for a club of that stature and with that pressure, that, that could really kind of help him grow as a player just mentally right having that pressure every single week that's what you want when you're a young player right is is to have the expectations and and to know that if you don't deliver well then it's probably going to be curtains for you but having seen Corbinu face multiple league one teams in cup competitions with wolves under 23 side last year that seemed to be about his level at the time now this was november december time and a lot has changed since then but I think physically, he still has a lot more development to do. He can certainly do that in League One. He has to adapt a little more to the pace of play, which, I mean, he will once again do that there. And I think being a regular at a club like Sheffield Wednesday will help him improve in all those areas physically and mentally. So we'll we'll see how that transpires. Uh, another player in a similar situation to him is Daniel Jebison, who at the time of recording, has four possible candidates for a loan. Sunderland was seen as the favorite, while fellow League One sides Burton Albion and Doncaster Rovers were keen as well. However, it appears that Bearshot in Belgium's Jupiler Pro League is the new favorite as they actually have a partnership with Sheffield United. So if Jebison does in fact go to Belgium, Thomas... Do you think he'll succeed there, or would League One have been more preferable? I think Belgium would be better for him, to be honest with you. And the reason I say that is because the English pyramid is so brutal, and you can get lost very easily, just because, obviously, you're talking about 92 professional clubs, and it never is, most of the time, it never is a smooth ride. Sometimes you'll see, you know, the Dean Hendersons of the world, League one, one year championship, the next year Premier League, and then you move up to, into a better Premier League. But that never happens. I mean, it's, it's, it's so dependent on so many different factors. I think if he were to go over to Belgium, he's playing on a, on a top uh, division, you know, a top 10 league. Belgium, he's going to be playing in one of the weaker teams if he signs for that specific club. But if he gets a lot of playing time and he scores uh, goals, he shows well. 
um, well, then he shows that he can make a bilateral move to the championship again and, and show uh, Sheffield United again, hey, I'm a, I'm a player that has championship level. Obviously, with Sheffield getting a new coach, um, the coach that gave him the opportunity was his old uh, youth coach. So there is that um, thing that, you know, he was not, not saying he didn't deserve it. 100% he did deserve his opportunity and he scored a goal. Um, but he was given another opportunity because of his older coach. Now, if he goes to Belgium, I think he's going to prove himself um, that he is worth the player that, that you know, he, he showed, no? Yeah, and he also got those opportunities because Sheffield United were long, long relegated when he came in, so that also helped. But yeah, I, I think Belgium is the spot for him right now because you, you have to keep in mind, as we sort of look at this from a wider perspective, Jevison was playing with the under-23s from December onwards. He got promoted right around Christmas time. Might have been November. I can't quite remember off the top of my head. Could have even been January. But he he goes to the under-23s, scores pretty much at a goal every other game pace, maybe even a bit better than that. And then he gets those four appearances with the first team, had flashes, he worked hard off the ball, but you could see he was still raw, physically mostly, but also just adapting to the speed of the Premier League. Decision-making was hesitant at times, and that's all to be expected. He just turned 18 and went supernova pretty much right away by scoring that goal. Going to Sunderland would have been okay in that regard because, much like Sheffield United, that's a big club with a lot of expectations, and League One is probably about Jebison's level right now, kind of upper League One right now. But because Sheffield United has that partnership with Bearshot, they can actually monitor his progress a lot more closely. They can try to get Bearshot to give him more minutes, uh, maybe put in a clause of some kind that he has to play a certain amount. Um, and Bearshot also only have two out-and-out number nines, and neither of them have started the season very well. So that could be an opportunity for him to kind of claim that place right away and then run with it. Uh, Belgium is a fast-paced league, though, so so it could be just as beneficial to play there every week as it would have been in League One, for sure. Over to Tejan Buchanan, uh, who is apparently nearing a move to Club Bruges. The Revolution and Bruges have agreed in principle to a $7 million transfer. This is according to Tom Bogert of MLSsoccer.com. Bruges would then loan Buchanan back to New England until the end of the MLS season, and he would then go over to Belgium in January. So this pending transfer has led to a question from Cam MNT Opinions asking, is Bruges the best option for Tejon? I know what the Belgian league can do for young players' development, i.e. Jonathan David, but I feel like at 22, he should try and make the jump straight to the top five leagues. Uh, Thomas, what say you? Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, I think Bruges would be, I don't know, I think Bruges is, is, is a club that you know, yes, it's it's one of the better clubs of Belgium, and you know you, you can be playing, you know, some Champions League, Europa League qualifying from time to time, which is very beneficial. I mean, it is. Uh, don't get me wrong, has its value, and, and Belgium League is very good. But I don't know. I think he he has what it takes to play at Augsburg um, with Lens in in Liga or or the Bundesliga. I think if he were to play for those two clubs, you know, mid-table Liga Bundesliga teams. He could get a lot of playing time. At Bruce, he's going to be met with, you know, a lot of players that, you know, are being loaned in from bigger clubs. Um, so I think he's, I think it might be a risky move. But at the same time, it, it's whatever New England wants. And obviously right now, the highest bidder is Club Bruce. 
And um, obviously, New England are not going to sell him just $1 million less, even though they could, just because maybe the player prefers something else. But yeah, if it were my personal preference, I think going to the top, going to the straight to the top five would be uh, my 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 preference. And also, just I just feel like sometimes players they take the it, it's good. Don't get me wrong; it's good to, to go to a development league like the Belgium league. It's amazing, but I feel like sometimes when nothing is ever a straight path. But in this case, Buchanan was playing against Mexican players that you know have La Liga experience. Like, he did not look out of place whatsoever. So, to me, he showed that he is good enough for that level without having to make a stop uh, in Belgium. There are so many ways for me to look at this. Because, in part, I agree with you. In terms of, like, I think he could have gone to Augsburg and made an immediate impact. Because I think, in a league like Germany, that suits his qualities the best. But I think it's a gamble no matter where he goes. And the reason for that is... As fantastic as he looked in the second half against Mexico, he also did struggle from a deeper position against them when they were boxing him in, and he couldn't really do very much. He had one or two moments whenever the ball got forward, but if he's going to play as a wingback at Bruges, that's something he has to learn, right? And a league like Belgium could help him do that where it, it's, it, it's a little less... I'm trying to think of the right word, because Germany is... Germany is essentially like a step up above Belgium because they're very similar playing styles. Belgium maybe isn't as polished, so I feel like he can thrive in that chaos a bit more. Also remember, too, Club Bruges is going to be playing in the Champions League. They paid a $7 million transfer fee, which is among the top fees that Bruges have paid in the last few years for a player. And the players that they have bought for around the same amount of money are like Simon Mignolet, who came from Liverpool. They bought... Um, I can't remember who it was, but they bought a player from Spezia recently for about the same price. Like, these guys are coming from top five leagues, and they're investing this money in an MLS player who two years ago was a rookie who very few people had really ever heard of. So the, the progress he's made is amazing, don't get me wrong. And yes, that goal against Mexico was terrific, and it shows you what happens when he is incisive in the box and he is getting forward like that. He is deadly but it doesn't always happen. And that is where going to Belgium could really help him polish himself off and then make that move in a couple of years because the resale value is still there at 22. And then, you know, if in two, three years, he's 24, 25, he can still make a jump to a top five league and make progress. And playing for a club with massive expectations will determine whether he can sink or swim. And you have to say so far, in high pressure moments, he has been able to swim so far. He has been. Um, the only concern that I have, and I do think that Belgium is, is a top league, not only because, I mean, if you look at the Belgium national team, they're incredible. And and the reason is that because they've worked so hard with it from their academy to their first team uh, all around, not just the first division of Belgium, but the second division as well. But the only concern that I have is John Herman talks a lot about tier one players. And I, I think it's true. I think if you want to be... Not necessarily to go to the World Cup. To go to the World Cup, you don't need tier one players. It helps for sure. We have two right now, Davies and David, who play in top five leagues. But I do think something said that if you look at the research, if you look at the numbers, in order to compete at the World Cup, you need at least five or six tier one players. And this is funny because when Japan did so well at the World Cup in Russia, people were like, whoa, what's going on in Japan, you know? History doesn't matter. If you look at Japan's players, they're playing in like La Liga, 
Premier League Serie A. Like, these guys are playing against the best of the best every single week, week in, week out. So, I think what's best for the player, yes, I, I, I think I do agree that Belgium might be the better option because obviously, if he goes to Augsburg, Lens, he's suspected to um, de- deliver right away as opposed to Bruges. You know, they'll give maybe give him some more time development-wise. But I just hope that the end goal of these players is to be in the top five and not get comfortable by playing in the top league and the top club of, of, of per se, Serbia in the case of, of Borjan, uh, best club of maybe, you know, other leagues that are, you know, outside the top five. But again, it was also out of Buchanan's control, right? Like, if he could really decide, maybe he would have gone to Augsburg. The fact that Bruges offered that amount of money, which is twice what Lons offered, I think it was out of his hands. I'm sure he would have loved to have gone to a tier one league, but sometimes you can't. So in this case, he just has to wait, right? Which is what he shall do from here on out. One other footnote before we dive into some other questions. Uh, Theo Bear has been loaned to Hamcam in the Norwegian second division from the Vancouver Whitecaps. Vancouver also loaned Gianfranco Facineri, their young center back, to San Diego in the USL, where I believe Callum Montgomery also plays. So maybe a p- potential Canadian centre-back duo down there. At a Trude 66 asked us, uh, do you think Lille is the best place for Jonathan David to develop? He rarely gets passes from his teammates, and when he does, it's usually from far outside the box where he's most effective. Is this a case of David needing to round out his game, or does Lille's style not suit him? Kind of a bit of a loaded question. I, I, I feel like, Thomas, there are a lot of ways that you could go with this. I mean, look. I mean, he's he's done decent at Lille. I mean, it, it did take him a while, though. I mean, people, a lot of people forget that it took a long time before he could score his first goal in Liga with Lille. But in the second half of the season, is when he really ramped it on. And I think right now he's in a position where you know he's comfortable there, and and he doesn't. There is no. I don't see this. I don't see it the same way that. It's not the right club for him because if it wasn't the right club for him, I think we would have figured out that out uh, months ago, a, a, maybe a year ago, um, that you know it wasn't the right fit. Does David still need to, you know, polish areas of his game? Sure. I mean, he's he's not nowhere near the finished product. I think he can still be a even more world class player than he is right now. I think he's a world class player right now because there's only a certain amount of players that play in the Champions League. And look, Lil won the Liga and. Um, when you beat players like Neymar and, and, and Mbappe. And yes, it wasn't on an individual basis per se, but collectively, points-wise, you know, it speaks volume. But I think he's fine right there. He's right. He's fine right there where he is. Although what I would say is, I think, David, this is the definitive season. I mean, if he doesn't leave Lil this year, then then he could still leave in the future. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you don't want to, you know, let it wait out. It's clearly frustrating to see him make those runs and then not receive a pass in a promising area. It is relatively the same side from last year as well, but just a couple of reminders to people. Christophe Galtier, the the manager, is gone. Jocelyn Gorbanek is in, so there will be an adaptation period under a new coach. And for that reason, I did expect a slow start for Lille again, especially for Jonathan David as he kind of tries to figure things out. And he also did play through a groin injury in June and he probably isn't fully over that yet. And, and he has been inactive for a bit, so it might take him some time to really get back up to speed again. You just don't know. Um, moving over to some players we both wanted to discuss, Thomas, uh, let's begin in Scotland. Why don't we? Because Scott Arfield started for Rangers 
against Malmo in Champions League qualifying. Now, the performance itself from our field was decent, but then he was an unused sub in the loss to Dundee United, I would assume, just to prepare for the second leg uh, against Malmo. But if he even plays half of Rangers games between now and when the Canada squad has to be announced and makes himself available, which it looks like John Herdman indicated that he will be made available, uh, should our field be called up? I think so. I mean, even if he's available for half of the games um, that the Rangers play, the fact that he played against Malmo, one of the best sides in Sweden, says a lot. Yes, I think there's the Swedish League and the Scottish League are around the same level, more or less. You could kind of judge there. And and, and thanks to Rutrud for at 66 for saying this, but actually sent me a, a link of um, a radio interview that John Herman had, and, and he expects to have um, Arfield in September. So it clearly means that Arfield, from at least an interest point of view, he definitely saw what happened at the Gold Cup, and he definitely saw what happened at June. Maybe he was sleeping when it happened, <laughs> but I'm sure he, over the next day he got a couple of text messages or saw it on social media or whatever. But regardless, in terms of his level, I mean, look, he's... Right now, do we expect him to be that guy who plays every single match for Rangers? He, he is aging, so and he's playing on a very competitive side, so not every time he's going to get his chance. But when he does, if he even even does a decent job at it, I mean, Canada are so deep right now that if Arfield and Hutchinson decide to come, you know, against the A sides, the sides that you want to play more attacking football, you know, you could, you know, play um, Ostakio. K Arfield, and for if you want more defensive football, you can play Piet, uh, Hutchinson, and Asori. Like the, the combinations are endless, and I think um, Arfield's role, as I said maybe countless times, is probably going to be diminished with Canada, um, but against more uh, opponents where maybe you don't expect to win so much, um, I think he could be helped there to you know help with defensive and, and and maybe create make something happen on the wings. Yes, and. Really, the, the fact that he is also in that leadership group, I think, probably boosts his case to come back because we all know how much John Herdman does respect the leaders in camps. Before moving on to uh, some other players, a couple notes on other Scotland-based footballers. Uh, David Watherspoon and St. Johnston, they've had a roller coaster start to the season. They've drawn their first two league games, but they earned a massive draw at Galatasaray in Europa League qualifying. The second leg is at home on Thursday. Uh, Watherspoon in that game, Thomas, it has to be said, was terrific. Um, he, I feel, was just everywhere. Pressing, finding the pockets of space, dragging defenders out. He played in some fantastic crosses and through balls. Galatasaray are shockingly poor these days, but for St. Johnston to go there and get a result with Watherspoon playing a key role, even without the away goals rule in effect, is monumental. And I, I feel Canada, they, they definitely missed him uh, in, in terms of his dynamism at the Gold Cup. He could have really been a, a key tool for them, for sure. Uh, Harry Payton with Ross County. He has made two appearances for them. One is a sub, the other is a starter. He's been playing a bit deeper in these first couple of games, which is where I prefer him. But you can still see he's lightweight in one-on-one -on -one duels, which hurts him. But when he gets on the ball and bombs forward, he makes stuff happen. It really was a shame that when he was in COVID protocol during the Gold Cup, because he could have really thrived with that Canadian squad around him. Uh, and also now joined by his brother, Ben Payton, who is an unused sub. 
in Germany, Scott Kennedy, he's picked up where he left off with Jan Regensburg. Given his strong start, Thomas, would you put him back into the 11 against Honduras, or would you stick with Miller and Vittoria for that game, given their recent chemistry? All right, here's my thinking, and I think my thinking has evolved over the past couple of days, weeks. Um, I think Miller and Kennedy can play together. I just think that it can happen. Um, with Johnston, you know, I think it can happen as well. You know, in, in terms of a, a worry standpoint, I don't know, man. I just think that with an aging Steven Vittoria and Danina Henry just keeps making mistakes that we thought were fixed, long gone, but, you know, they're still there. I think those three are your best center backs. And one of them isn't even a center back. Uh, and the other two play in the exact same position. But I think you can make it work. I think Miller, Kennedy, and Johnson are still your best player um, in that position. Um, so if John Homer can figure it out to play a back three of those three, Johnson, Miller, and Kennedy, you should do it 100%. Um, just because my confidence in, in Henry and Victoria isn't as big as it is in those three. Well, I, I am blown away by the progress that Kennedy's made on the ball in these first two or three games. Like, he's now willing to drive forward with it. He's breaking lines with his passing, which you didn't really see a lot last year. So if both of them play together, that could be a really useful weapon. I just don't feel comfortable, e even though Kennedy has played on the right. I, I still feel like you can rotate both of them, especially with the quick turnaround. Like, it it's very useful to have that. Uh, and the fact that Kennedy is now basically like for like with Miller, I think really helps. The, the big difference though, I, I feel Scott Kennedy in the air is stronger, whereas maybe Kamal Miller is slightly further ahead with his technique, but either way, there's very little difference between the two right now. Speaking of center backs, Justin Smith wasn't in the match day squad for Nice in their Liga opener against Ryan. And this has gotten people wondering, like, should there be any concern? And I don't know if it was really ever possible that Justin Smith was going to play right at the start because you can see watching the film from the friendlies that he is still very raw and he gets frazzled under pressure. He occasionally makes the wrong decision as a result. And he's also been predominantly used in the midfield on the right of a midfield trio. Uh, nice is stacked there. So it'll be very difficult to get regular games. And they're also quite loaded at center back too. So perhaps he'll get his opportunities in the cup competitions. France does have two of them. Um, but for right now, I feel like it's more of just like a wait-and-see situation right now. Stefan Mitrovic, he has been electric to start the season in Serbia with Radniki Nice. Thomas, given that he now seems to be playing with, you know, fearlessness and, and is getting into the box and he's not afraid to take shots and he's making things happen in a central position, which I felt was his best role, do you think he couldn't end up cracking a Canada squad by the end of the Ocho? Um, right now, because he is playing in the Serbian top league, um, he's playing for not a big club, a smaller club. Um, I don't think so, but he's definitely shown that he can play much more than Serbia. Um, like I think his level can be higher of Serbia. What league specifically, I couldn't tell you. I think that those some things you just happen naturally. Um, but I think uh, he's a player to watch out for. Right now, I would even put... Um, I know we'll talk about him in a minute, but Gloria Amanda and, and Mitrovic in that same scope. Now, I would make several changes. Like, I'd bring back Davey Davies and, and, and Liam Miller as well, who we'll talk about just upcoming up. But I just think that Mitrovic is is, is um, 
on the on the cuff looking in. Like he's he's way back in the depth chart. Can he, he can he catch up and and maybe crack the team at some point during his career, perhaps in the coming year? Sure, sure he can. But it's going to depend for me in the in the club and the league that he's in. Well, he is 19 coming up here. Uh, this is a massive season for him. He's clearly started off very, very well. If he continues this, it'll be very difficult to justify, I think, keeping him out for too long. Uh, but if by, like, say, you know, Christmas time, he's still doing this, then I think we can really have a proper conversation. But I, I still think it's nuts that he wasn't really considered for the under-23s or put on the provisional squad, for that matter, for the Gold Cup. But that's already been discussed in the past. Uh, you mentioned him there, Thomas. Liam Miller, he's made five appearances for Basel so far, totaling about 180 minutes. Um, first three games, from my point of view, not too impactful. But the last two, which I'm sounding like a broken record here, when he has been allowed to drift inside and dictate games, that's when he has really thrived. What have you made of his beginning in Switzerland? Well, he caused a chance that ended up in a goal, right? Um, yes. In one of his first couple of games. And he also, one of the other games that he came on as a sub, from what you could see from social media, he he was quite dangerous, even, you know, almost um, getting a, a golden opportunity himself. So, you know, Liam Miller, um, I think he's, Gonna be there's gonna be some adjusting periods, um, but yeah, good. I mean, like I said, he's one of the players that I, I would recall for sure. As would I. Um, former Whitecaps youth product Glory Amanda has three appearances for Austria Klagenfurt so far in the top flight. There, um, he's looked. I mean, t- to me, Thomas, he's been a little bit unlucky because. He exited early from his debut after a red card, which was very unfortunate. Um, but you can see the technique and the speed of his touch on the ball is already causing a few problems in Austria. The biggest thing for him, it looks like, is just adaptation and gaining chemistry with his teammates because he still looks maybe slightly lost in that regard. The fact this guy didn't get at least offer from uh, the Vancouver Whitecaps or any MLS club for that matter. I mean, the guy won the NCAA uh, Division One Men's Soccer MVP award. He's not just any other guy. I mean, he, he did quite, quite well for himself. Um, and I think he's at the right club. Scott Kennedy's former club, um, the Austrian Bundesliga, which is a pretty decent league. Um, and you can see what happens when you're playing at these kinds of leagues. I mean, look, Samad Kubik. I mean, he was playing in the Norway League, which, you know, I it's not that I don't rate highly, but I think it's one of those even more development leagues. Like, it's not even considered Belgium. Like, it would be considered, to me, part with with Austria. So if, if Gloria Mannequin can do well in, in Austria, then then the, the 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 opportunities are endless, I think. And and one thing to say, I, I know he's not on the list, but Kanisha Elva looks like he's been looks like he's been uh shot out of um of his club Ingolstadt now that they're in the second Bundesliga. So it looks like his chances of breaking the can MNT are looking less than sure. Yeah, a little bit surprised by that, given how well he did in the third tier. But I guess Ingolstadt was just like, ah, don't know if he's maybe up to it. I would disagree with that. But anyways, finally, uh, Steven Simpson, who's contracted to Barnsley in the championship. He's on loan at Esbjerg in the Danish second tier, who almost got promoted last year. So they have some ambitions there. And to those who maybe don't know as much about Steve Simpson, uh, he's 21 years old, can play as a winger or a striker. He joined Barnsley midway through last season, played in the academy upon his arrival, and then came the decision, do we put him in the under-23s or do we maybe send him out on loan? Obviously, the latter happened, which is why he is now in Denmark. Uh, definitely looks like a strong dribbler and very quick. 
just needs to work on his distribution and know when to pass, which I think will come maybe once he develops more of an understanding with his teammates over there. But so far, you, you can see flashes of that for sure. And a couple of news, uh, or a couple pieces of news here before we move over to uh, the closing of the show. Alfonso Davies has returned to Bayern Munich training. He is in line to play their Bundesliga opener versus Borussia Mönchengladbach on Friday. That is obviously encouraging with the Ocho starting in a few weeks. Uh, Alistair Johnston missed Nashville's loss against Miami with a right ankle issue, but it's not seen as too serious right now. So obviously that'll be something to monitor with uh, the Ocho three weeks away. In MLS, Toronto FC came from 2-0 down to draw 2-2 with NYCFC. Uh, Ralph Prizo playing a vital role as a second-half substitute, once again proving why maybe more of those young Canadians deserve a chance for TFC. Uh, CF Montreal, speaking of which, their struggles continue. They're winless in five after losing 2-1 to one to DC United. The bright side for them is Zachary Broguillard scored another accidental, possibly, worldy, and uh, Joel Waterman looked good on the ball again. So uh, what are your thoughts on his potential Canadian men's national team stock, Thomas? He, he could be like a fifth centre-back option, just given how good he is on the ball. Well, considering that Canada took uh, Frank Sterling to the Gold Cup, I think that Waterman is taking his... I think Waterman is, is, is there to take a Sterling spot, essentially. As, as, as what you say, the fifth spot in the centre-back pecking order. Um, but I think he needs to play more. He needs to play more consistently for me to be part of the of the 23-man squads, for sure. And, and look, CBG, I mean, I know I sound like a broken record here, but the guy looks like a forward. Um... <laughs> I'm telling you, I think, you know, if if we can shift Johnston into a center back, change him into a center back and not call one of Victoria and Henry and, and you know, uh, trust that Loreas are starting right back and bring uh, CBG as a as a sub, I think that'd be the perfect um, case for me. Uh, and, and shout out to Sebastian Bressa uh, for yes. finally making MLS debut. He's a guy that I thought I was worried about. I thought he was getting lost in the system. He made the bench of a couple of Serie A games. Um, so I thought that, you know, he had a lot of potential, but he, was, he was just never got his opportunity in Europe. So he's finally getting in North America. Absolutely. Uh, the Vancouver Whitecaps, they made it five unbeaten after drawing 1-1 with the LA Galaxy on Sunday, although they only have one win in their last 13 games, a major caveat there. Uh, but some pretty positive news before that. They announced the signings of Ryan Gauld, Pedro Vite, and Florian Jungwert. Uh, Gauld made his debut as a second-half substitute and made an immediate impact, pretty much, almost scored. Um, Jungwert was an unused substitute, and Vite is still trying to obtain a visa. The CPL have been back in home markets for you know a couple weeks now, and Pacific have since claimed top spot after the return with Cavalry a close second. Valor, who finished the first phase on top of the table, are three points adrift of the leaders now. And finally, BMO Field, as you have teased Thomas, that will be the venue for Canada's first few home games from the look of it. Um, re really no surprise, j just given that this seems to be really one of the main home bases for the national team, no? No, no surprise at all. Um, what I'm actually surprised about is that it took this long to make an announcement, but that's uh, that's just what happens. I mean, they were really busy, I'm sure, Canada soccer with everything happened at the Olympics and, and, and the Gold Cup for sure. Um, and look, it's not just uh, confirmed just uh, for the match against Honduras, September 2nd. 
and September 8th, which looks like I'll be covering it uh, for certain outlets there. Um, but also Panama. They've confirmed yep. that uh, they're going to be playing for Panama. So, I mean, that's good. I mean, it saves uh, that extra announcement gap. Indeed. Maybe Vancouver's after in November and January, just given the slightly mm. colder temperatures in Toronto. Although November isn't out of the question. Toronto FC has... Definitely January, games. for sure. But January, I, I for expect- sure. Yeah, January is probably the one where you look at and say, yeah, that's probably going to the West Coast, uh, which maybe some, out even in Alberta and Saskatchewan, might be happy about that. Uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. For Thomas Neff, I'm Peter Galindo. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>